We have previously praised New York City Mayor Eric Adams uh, for some of the things that he talked about going into the office. And uh, now he faces a very thorny issue that we're going to dig into in this episode of Right Angle. Uh, gentlemen, Eric Adams recently put out a directive that said that police and other city workers were going to start uh, removing mentally ill homeless people who are in a psychiatric crisis, not necessarily a danger to other people, but perhaps a danger to themselves, remove them from the streets and get them into hospitals basically for their own good. Adams has previously described mentally ill homeless people as uh, one of the causes of the rise of recent subway crimes. Yeah. Um, and so now this directive comes down. It's going to take months to implement because they really don't have the resources in place to do what they're talking about. But uh, the reason I bring it up, guys, is because this is one of those situations where there are so many complicating factors that one wonders whether this is just a condition of life and there's nothing we can do about it, or that smart people somewhere, whether in government or elsewhere, might be able to coordinate their efforts and actually accomplish something. Um, there have been a lot of arrests in the subway as New York tries to deal with this problem. They have a uh, I'm trying to uh, to find the oh it's there's a crime if you're on a subway train there's a crime called being overstretched <laughs> and it basically means you're taking up more than one seat which probably means you're a homeless guy sleeping on the bench uh, in the subway or across some chairs in the subway. And so uh, there have been something like 470 arrests this year for people who were being overstretched. There's an estimated uh, 60,000 people in the municipal shelter system, 19,310 of those apparently children. There may have been in this past January, some 3,400 people just out on the streets without uh, any kind of shelter. And January in New York is, to say the least, no fun. Um, in any case, the, some of the complications that I, uh, that I picked up just reading a couple of stories at NPR and the New York Times and some other places, um, number one, police should not be evaluating mentally, uh, mental health conditions. Uh, number two, yeah. there are in many cases, these mental health patients or mental health people or mentally disabled people, whatever you want to call them, are already known to some providers in various ways, but there's no coordination of care. And if you send a police team in there to, to take care of them or some city workers to take care of them, they don't have the insight that these other agencies have. Um, there are things that are known as supportive housing solutions, but those supportive housing solutions are already turning away four out of five uh, qualified applicants. So this is these are people who otherwise like would have made it, but but couldn't. Um, there's not nearly enough hospital beds. Uh, outpatient clinics are booked for months out uh, if they're even accepting referrals. Um, and then you get to some sort of philosophical issues that would affect us, like involuntary committal to a psychiatric facility seems to be a clash with our values of individual liberty. Um, the expansion of government required millions and millions of dollars spent to accomplish something like this. And then um, something that the, the homeless themselves bring up, including the mentally ill homeless, is the concern that they may be at greater risk in a facility or in an interaction with police than they would be out on the streets. And reading this, it was just kind of like, 
one thing after another that seemed to just weigh me down. And I was like, is this just one of those things where you you have to say, you know, like Jesus said, although this is out of context, you know, the poor you will always have with you, uh, the mentally ill homeless you will always have with you, and there's not much you can do about it? Well, this is kind of an interesting point because we've always had the mentally ill and the homeless and alcoholics with us in America. But we never had this problem of, of half naked people standing on street corners screaming at the sky for for four months. And, I don't know. I've and, never lived know, in and, a city. And, Are you serious? Is that true? I don't. I know. am serious. No, I am serious. Yeah. And uh, and and if you want to go to the other extreme. Every time we see one of these people, Natasha says, there are no homeless people in Moscow. I said, I don't doubt that whatsoever. I said, where do they put them? She says, I don't know. They're gone. And I know a little bit about that society. So I'm not. So obviously there is there is a, a dark side to this. So you, you mentioned our values. So let's let's deal with our values. Right. I mean, the fundamental value it, when you get right down to it is you should be allowed to live your life any way you want to. So long as you don't harm or in, infringe upon other people's ability to leave the, live their, their life the way that they want to. If you take it to its logical conclusion, what that really means is if you want to scream at the wall in the basement of your own house or apartment, that's your business. But once you start doing it outside, once you start committing crimes, once you start acting dangerously, raising the level of ambient risk, now it's now it's a public problem. Now, now I do have a, a dog in this fight. So when you talk about involuntary committal to psychiatric uh, hospitals, I'm in favor of that after a rigorous uh, screening process. Not to, not even to determine whether or not they have mental issues, but to determine whether or not they have legal responsibility for their own actions, right? The insanity defense is a tough one to prove, and it should be a tough one to prove. You don't get to just because just you come in and cluck like a chicken during your trial. That yeah. doesn't mean that you get the insanity defense. But in those cases where people are found to be insane, they are judged to be not guilty of the crime because they are incapable of telling right from wrong. And if you have a, a similar standard to that, where you where you have an individual who is no longer capable of, of making those decisions, a free society belongs to people who make free decisions. And if that person is so mentally ill or impaired or addicted that they can no longer do that, then it's not in society's interests or their interests for them to be allowed to continue out on the street. Well, and the and interesting thing, and the twist on what you're saying, Bill, is even though there has been a connection, a link between the rise in subway crime, for example, um, and the homeless, mentally ill people, um, and, and Adams has overtly blamed the homeless, mentally ill people for the rise in crime, uh, nevertheless, most overall crime is not committed by homeless or mentally ill people. No, I, uh, I understand And that. not only that, um, most of them are not violent. And as one homeless, mentally ill person herself pointed out um, and others reaffirmed, the homeless, mentally ill are more likely to be victims than perpetrators. Yes. And so I'm not saying take every homeless person and, and shove them into the clink. That's, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you have to do a, a basic kind of a triage with this problem. By the way, this problem developed in the 80s. The, the, the liberals blamed it on the fact that Ronald Reagan apparently cut social service budgets and, and, the, and the Republicans blame it on the Democrats for saying that who are we to say that these people should be locked up? You know, everybody should be free to walk around in the streets and so on. But prior to the mid 80s, Crazy people were in insane asylums. Well, back in the 70s, yeah, well, Ronald yeah. Rivera hey, hey, did an undercover a report in a in a mental institution. And I think that really kind of broke the dam on institutionalization. It, it did. Yeah. Because they, they were, were horrific. But that's not but that's not a horrific institution 
is not an indictment of the fact that that person, that the people there needed to be institutionalized. It's an indictment of the fact that the institution is 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 criminally negligent. You could make the same argument about a hospital, right? Look, if somebody if somebody suffers a burst appendix and they go to a hospital, and the hospital botches the operation. It's not the fault. It's not to say that the guy with the burst appendix shouldn't have gone to the hospital in the first place. It just should have gone to a hospital that, that's run by human beings, right? Here, here's the thing. So, the, 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 yeah. the standard is supposed to be for, for locking somebody up involuntarily like this. Are they a danger to themselves or others because they just don't have enough connection to reality to stop themselves from hurting themselves or others? Um, but if we're going to do this, we can't go back to, you know, those those awful Victorian asylums that you'll sometimes see in movies that were that were very real and very awful, or even the stuff that uh, uh, you read about in the expose or, uh, hell, one of my favorite books and movies, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If mm-hmm. we're going to do this, and I think we have to, and it, it bothers my small L libertarian soul that there are people who are just not fit for no fault of their own to live in a free society, uh, we've got to do it right. We can't build torture chambers and just lock people up in them and say, sorry, uh, we got to do it right. And that's going to take a significant commitment of resources. The most striking quote in the story was actually by former police commissioner William Bratton, who served under Mayor Rudy Giuliani and later, later under Mayor Bill de Blasio. And I don't know why this got to me so. But he referred to the homeless mentally ill as these poor souls. They Absolutely. Poor souls. These poor souls. They are yeah. poor and, souls. They, and that was they, they the least to... institutional sentence in the story. And it was you saw this guy who's renowned for being, you know, leading the broken windows theory where we're really going to crack down on even minor crimes because those minor crimes inexorably lead to major crimes. And 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 here he is looking at the homeless mentally ill and saying, These poor souls. This it, like Steve okay, said, so, no fault of yep. their own. So if Absolutely. this guy, if if this guy is such a t- tough policeman, and I strongly support him because I saw what New York was before he got there and what it's becoming now that he's gone, but he doesn't refer to criminals as these poor souls. Nope. So what's the difference? The difference is volition. That's the difference. He he has a different opinion of criminals because they make a decision to do these things. He calls he calls the the the, the most. Uh, distressed of the homeless, these poor souls, because they're not making a decision. They're not capable of making a decision. These people don't deserve, they don't, it's not that they don't deserve freedom. They need medical care and and they need it right now. It's it, when, if you think about mental health as, as you would think of physical health, the idea of going through an American city and finding scores of people who are lying on the ground because they're going into diabetic comas or suffering heart attacks, and we walk past them again and again and again every day is anathema. These people need medical help the same way that those people need medical help. And so really what it comes down to is it has to come down to, to triage. And when I say triage, I don't mean triage by taking the the worst cases and and euthanizing them or locking them away forever. I'm just saying we have to look at the people that are out on the street and homeless and make and make a decision. Is what one group is these people are incapable of taking care of themselves. You can put them in housing, you can put them in 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 voluntary shelters. It doesn't matter. They're not capable of yeah. taking care of themselves. In most cases they have extraordinarily life-threatening uh addictions or or alcoholism. Those people need immediate medical care and they need to be confined to that facility until or if they recover. Ma- on, the, on the other side of the spectrum, 
You've got people who are homeless because, well, I'll be perfectly frank about it. In LA, at least, there is a percentage of the homeless population. I don't know what it is, but it's but it's a percentage of people who choose to be homeless. They just don't want to live on the grid. I see them. I, I don't see them quite so much anymore. But there was a while there. You see, 20, 30, you know, 20, 23 year olds. They just they just they can live on the streets. So why not? And this is not those who, people. Like if if Eric Adams were in L.A., he wouldn't be concerned about these people. This is not the. Target. Well, I would be concerned about them. Those people who are capable of taking care of themselves. If, if you are allowed to sleep, look. There, it's better now, but for most of the time that I lived in the house I'm in, I would drive underneath the overpass that's a quarter of a mile away from my house, and there would be nothing but people sleeping there and accumulations of garbage and, and needles and, and all that stuff. And this is a nice area of, 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 of the valley. And so the reason that they, look, here's a great example, okay? In Los Angeles, I saw a photograph of this. It's an underpass in Los Angeles, and on one side of the street, it's a street, right? On one side of the street, on the sidewalk, there's nothing but tents, sleeping bags, garbage, and all the rest of it. And the other side of the street is absolutely spotless. And you know what the difference was? One side of that street was LA County, and the other side of that street was an incorporated city within LA County, and they had different laws. And what that's telling me is, you're allowed to be homeless on this side of the street, you're not allowed to be on that side of the street, Okay, but so so with with those people or or people who are genuinely down on their luck, then these kind of you know short term assistance programs hopefully get them back on their feet. But the real danger, not the danger, the the real workload is what do you do with people who've been homeless for so long, jobless for so long? They are not mentally inca- incompetent. They are not incapacitated, but they don't know how to live in society. Those yeah. people are. Those are the people that you can save. You know, I that you can actually save. Although God knows it's it's a it's a lot of work. I I moved to San Francisco almost exactly 30 years ago. It was December of of 92. And right right at the end of the year. And I joked almost immediately upon getting acquainted with the 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 city better. I mean, I visited a lot, but different when you live there is that the homeless were treated like an endangered species. They were protected. Uh not just protected but subsidized and the situation was pretty bad back then. Flash forward now, um, I believe the uh, monthly stipend paid to the homeless. Seriously, they're, they're just they're they're paid. I think it's eight hundred bucks a month now, just to be in San Francisco and not have a place to live. And I think they should you'll have see, to give tours for that kind of pay, right? And uh, you'll see interviews that are uh, put together by uh, I believe uh, his name is Michael Schellenberger. He's a semi-red-pilled lefty who's – I think he ran for, for governor this last time around. Uh, very interesting guy. Um, doing interviews with people who are not drug-addicted, not mentally ill, have made this choice because for 800 bucks a month, they can live in a tent in a nice part of the city – and uh, have very little expenses and anything they need to, for entertainment, they get on their on their iPhone or their Samsung device that is paid for courtesy of the city. Now, it's, one of the one of the things that Steve mentioned, I think, uh, deserves a, a, a bit of a counterpoint. And he he actually highlighted this in the way he said it. Most of our examples of what we think of a psychiatric institution is like come from literature and movies. Uh, most yeah. or Geraldo Rivera's report. 
<laughs> as I said. Um, so we have this this view of this dark Victorian torture chamber kind of thing. Um, and having uh, some acquaintance with uh, the system in where I used to live in Missouri, I- I'll tell you that um, I worked for a while as an attendant. Uh, I don't forget what the formal title was. I had a, a care for a period of, I think, six hours a day um, with a person who had been released as part of deinstitutionalization of mental patients, had been released from a psychiatric hospital. And the state actually gave his father a ton of money, bought him a house, and was taking care of his needs. And so this guy owned a house. Now, side note, I did not. <laughs> But anyway, this guy, I couldn't afford a house on the on what I was getting paid to watch this guy. <laughs> but anyway, um, he was classified with a whole uh, basket of deplorable mental conditions, including mm. uh, schizophrenia and uh, Tourette's syndrome and something else, which I'd never heard of be, uh, before or since called intermittent explosive disorder. Uh, the results of intermittent displos- explosive disorder in him included uh, twice having destroyed almost every window in his house uh, by just going around and just smashing everything he could smash. And then at least once uh, throwing a telephone at me. And this was when telephones were heavy objects that would sit yeah, on yeah. tables. Uh, so he threw the entire telephone. He missed. Um, but so so this guy, they were trying to get him out of what was perceived to be this horrible psychiatric hospital environment. And they put him in his own house and they paid me and sometimes two staffers at a time to accompany him to public places. He weighed about 280, 300 pounds. He was about six foot four. Um, and if he had been skilled at all, he could have crushed me like a bug. Um, but we were to take him out to the grocery store, not to buy anything, just to be in the grocery store, just to try to function in society. And so my basic job was to walk around with him and then uh, politely explain to little old ladies why he suddenly made a loud whooping noise and gave them a (laughs) double barrel finger gesture uh, right in their faces. And I have to, it's okay, ma'am, I'm sorry. You know, when we'd walk on. See, I want to do that with the slow walkers at Sam's Club on Sundays. (laughs) That's right. See, See, I don't think- You wonder, was he better off? Uh, was the state better off? Was it actually cheaper for the state to pay me to buy his house, to to give him a stipend to live on than it was to keep him in an institution? And I'm not sure every institution was that bad. I think I, I think little not. old ladies have a right to go shopping without having some lunatic shouting at the top of his lungs and, and flashing them birds. You know, I think I think that is I think that is that is not something I would expect to see from civilized society. If if that guy is not able to control that kind of behavior, then then you know, then that's it. And as far as the cost of it goes, as far as the government doing something about it goes, all of us are against government spending and government programs, right? But first of all, from a philosophical point of view, I think this is a genuine job for government. It's not a job for the federal government, but it's a job. It's a job for government. It occurs in the public space, right? It is a. It is a self. It is a health and safety issue. It is a legitimate use of government funds in the same way that it's a legitimate use to get criminals off the street. And in terms of the cost of it. Even if you were to go on a on a, a massive uh, building or, uh, pr- and staffing program for mental health, 
the cost of doing that would be insignificant compared to the insane amounts of money that we simply just hand out to people, right? We just, just the giveaways and the entitlements, it's, 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 you, it's not even a measurable sliver of what that would cost. And, and so, you know, when Steve says, you know, you're going to get paid $800 a month because you're homeless, you're subsidizing it. You are, you are, the, oh, and whatever you and, subsidize, you get more. And of. The, the guy that I, I was quoting in this, in this interview who had made this rational choice to become a subsidized drug dealer. Uh, and I think he was, uh, he was living around the, the UN or city hall. It was a very nice part of town. Um, was saying he had come to San Francisco from somewhere else because he heard about the money. Yeah, Santa Monica had that problem. They said, we're a homeless refuge. It's nice and warm there. Next thing you know, the, the homeless population in San Francisco is highest in the country. And then all the rich people who voted for this law because it made them feel good, all of a sudden voted for another law that got them out of there because now that this not now the virtue Monica. signaling is not free anymore. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I can, I can so understand in, why there's a huge number of homeless people in Los Angeles given the climate. And I can also understand why there's a huge number of mentally ill people in New York given the climate. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's puzzling to me why there's a huge number of homeless people in New York, because if I wanted to be homeless, I would not be in New York. And it and to me, uh, addiction and mental health issues explain it, um, but it doesn't it doesn't solve it. Can I add one sunny uh, note here? Of course. And it took me to read I all the way to. to the end of, I think, the New York Times story. Uh, where they went out and they interviewed some people in the street um, who were homeless and who had uh, some kinds of, of mental illnesses. And one uh, schizophrenic woman credited police with committing her involuntarily to psychiatric wards three times yes. in the past. And she said, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gotten the care I needed. She's currently on medication. She's Good under control. Her. She's still homeless, but she is she is uh, under control with the medications. And she said, um, and this is the quote, the stigma is that psych wards are bad. They are not. They care. That, that yes. makes me feel much better. Um, and that's what, and that's what one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which was a, a brilliant show failed to point out. And that was that this place is the exception. That's why we're telling the story, Yeah. right? This is the exception. Ratchet is the exception. If you look at everybody else on the staff of that hospital, they're perfectly normal, kind, caring people. She's one of the greatest villains of all time, but it's an exception. Now, what Steve was saying about Victorian times, the worst of these institutions in, in Victorian times in London was called Bedlam. And that's where we get the expression from. It's Bedlam. It's nothing but people screaming 24 hours a day and these and these institutions haven't been like that for a hundred years. So yes, it's unfair to say that that a psych ward is is a place where you're either going to be lobotomized or 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 get electroshock yeah. therapy, you know, every day. They're not. It's a hospital, and and the people who work in those hospitals, the huge majority of them are are in healthcare for the same reason other people are in healthcare because they care about people and they don't want to see them sick or suffer. And there, so yeah, there might be another silver lining, although it's. it's <laughs> <laughs> it's a really dark cloud. Um, one of the reasons why uh, crack usage declined after uh, after the the peaks of I guess the the mid nineties is uh, a syndrome that's called not like my brother, where the younger siblings saw what happened to the older brother on crack mm. and just said no, 
I'm never, I'm never touching that stuff. And so it started to decline. Uh, so much of our homelessness right now is driven by fentanyl, which is just a vile, vile opioid. It's just it's addictive and deadly and measures that we've never seen before. Uh, <clears throat> we may see uh, a combination of people just dying out because the stuff will kill you. And the younger generation saying, or the younger siblings going, wow, I am never touching that stuff. Not like my brother. Well, and you, you look at what Eric Adams is doing as mayor of New York, and on the one hand, um, you can say, wow, look at all the obstacles he faces. There's no way this is going to work. It's been decades long uh, that they've had this problem. On the other hand, cities across the country are, are looking to New York. Um, New York often sets the pace or, or is in the lead for good or for ill uh, yeah. for the way they run things. And so there are many major urban areas. And, and I think we have to acknowledge as essentially suburban and rural conservatives uh, that we may not fully grasp what the challenges of urban life are like from a governing perspective. And, and uh, you know, and I would say that for myself, I know Steve has lived in San Francisco and that is kind of like a city, um, but they- <laughs> It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so, you know, there, there's that, that, that New York is really on the vanguard of something here. They're starting a conversation at the very least about what could be done. Adams is likely to run into obstacles that he can't overcome, funding that he can't acquire, uh, internal bureaucracy that he can't budge, um, and all kinds of other challenges. Uh, nevertheless, I think uh, it's one of those things where I read the story and I said, you know, I feel like I'm moved and paralyzed at the same time. It is, you want to do something, you don't know what to do. And there is an instinct among us, especially when it comes to anything involving government, to negate or deny or refuse to listen to solutions that come from uh, other teams other than your own. And I think this is one of those situations where we have to say, look, we all walk these streets, we all live in this city, we all need to figure out a way to work together because my problem with that guy down in the subway isn't that he's a Democrat. Uh, my problem is that he is a danger to himself and to others, that he's a poor soul who needs help. And somehow through private initiative or public, we need to come together and figure out a way to deal with this.